My name is Emma Harris. I'm CEO of Glow London. And my biggest leadership lesson is nothing is more important than looking after yourself. Hello and welcome to Management Today's new Leadership Lessons podcast. I'm Kate McGee, the editor of Management Today. And I'm Ailish Cronin, staff writer at Management Today. This episode's topic is Fresh Starts. As we're kicking off a new podcast series and a new year, we're going to take a look at what might lie in store for leaders in 2023. Then we're going to hear the powerful story of Emma Harris, the chief exec of Glow London, who, due to overwork, had a cardiac arrest on a work trip and only survived because, miraculously, there were three doctors in the restaurant able to give her CPR. Her message to other leaders is to slow down, prioritise what's really important and take care of yourself first. Let's discuss the landscape for leaders in the coming months. Leaders certainly had a lot on their plate in 2022. The Great Resignation, hybrid work, the war in Ukraine, the energy crisis, three prime ministers, a damaging economic experiment and quiet quitting. So it's no surprise that permacrisis was named the word of the year by the Collins Dictionary. Unfortunately, 2023 is not looking any brighter. Economists are saying the recession will be announced. Official data from the Office for National Statistics is expected to show that the economy slid into recession at the end of last year. Leaders are worried about how bad it's going to be and then what they can do to shore up their business during the recession. In our new Recession Dilemma series, we talk about the issues facing leaders, including should they make redundancies? Should they raise prices? Should they cut their marketing budget, borrow more money? How are they going to cope? So Ailish, you've been taking the temperature of CEOs over the last couple of weeks. What are they focusing on in 2023? Well, for 2023, one of the biggest issues will be retaining existing employees and attracting new talent. As you said in your opening salvo, the great resignation was a term we saw everywhere and fallout of this mass exodus meant that businesses were struggling to attract talent which then subsequently forced them to look inwards at their own policies and employee benefits to see where they can improve. So for this year, that will definitely be the case. But there is evidence to suggest that the jobs market will regain some sense of equilibrium. Leaders will be looking to tighten the purse strings where they can and potentially won't hire with the same sense of urgency as they did in 2022. But also employees will be less likely to take flight, less likely to leave their jobs because of said recession, the cost of living crisis. They will be looking to stay put to sort of gain some sort of financial stability in the months ahead. So we'll see a lot less job hopping, fewer sort of counter offers and the ratio of job vacancies to candidates will begin to even out. So with this in mind, there's going to be a lot of pressure on leaders to support existing employees during the cost of living crisis and looking at ways that they can improve employee benefits such as mental health support or allowances for things like travel, commuting, which is getting more and more expensive, and also then boosting those out to potential new talent as well. That's really interesting. I mean, there's been a lot of talk about the empathetic leader and the servant leader seems to be sort of in vogue at the moment. But it'll be interesting to see whether there's a power grab by leaders as the economic difficulties kick in this year. 
Uh, we saw last year some chief execs talking to us, telling us they were going to use the threat of a recession uh, and you know, potentially redundancies to force employees back into the office, which we strongly think is the wrong thing to do. And Diageo's chief HR officer told me the same thing and said that she would again advise against that because it's just going to create kind of bitterness among mm. employees in the future. But and at the same time, we've still got the you know, strikes going on. We've got this quiet quitting phenomenon where workers are effectively working to rule to this pushback against hustle culture and the burnout epidemic. Um, and I was at the CBI conference at the end of last year. And the biggest concern most business leaders had was this shortage of skilled workers. So I think how all of this collides with the economic challenges is going to be a really interesting one to keep our eyes on. The other point I think you made there, which was interesting, is the um, high pay day um, took place last week. And this idea that if the average employee is really struggling in the cost of living crisis, but the leaders don't seem to be feeling any impacts because they're on these incredibly large salaries. I think that's going to be an interesting area for leaders to keep their eye on to make sure they're not seeming to be kind of too out of step with their employees and losing their kind of legitimacy to rule. <laughs> so I think that's going to be an interesting area to watch as well. What else have chief execs been telling you? Well, the second half of 2022 seemed to be dominated by quite a severe energy crisis. We saw prices shoot up due to inflation and many people were very frightened about the impending winter. They weren't sure if they were going to be able to heat their homes for the winter. And for some people, this was something they'd never had to consider before. There was also a brief but quite noticeable mass panic over the possibility of national blackouts. And we heard the term load shedding for the first time, which is something I'm still having to get my head around. Um, <laughs> and a lot of homes and businesses as well sort of had to brace themselves for a potential electricity shut off. And a lot of leaders were concerned over what that would mean for how they would run their business if they had certain processes that they needed to keep running 24-7. How are they going to be able to keep their businesses running during these potential electricity shutoffs? Luckily, this never happened. But despite that, 2023, the global energy crisis is set to continue throughout the year and beyond. And energy optimization is one of the things to be expected to be front and centre for a lot of businesses, particularly with their sustainability strategies. Can you just explain what energy optimization is for people that don't know? Um, so it's business leaders looking at their sustainability practices, particularly with their use of energy and seeing how they can best optimise it for their business and the planet. So one CEO that commented, Chantal Sheepers, the chief exec of Oak Tree Power, says that emerging sort of flexibility services have shown enormous potential for businesses within urban areas. This is a trend that's likely to enter the mainstream as some of these sorts of services can help companies be rewarded for perhaps changing the times that they use energy to smooth out peaks in electricity demand. So there will be rewards for leaders who comply to potentially sort of different energy optimization services. So it will benefit businesses and also benefit the planet at the same time. Great. So it may be a way for businesses to reduce their energy bills yes, effectively. Yeah. yeah. Perfect. And next, anything else? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so uh, cybersecurity was another thing that was mentioned. Cybersecurity is often relegated to a more tech-minded individual or a tech team. But there were a couple of concerns that cybersecurity should be front of mind for leaders within the C-suite this year. Leaders should be investing in technology to ensure that cybersecurity systems are watertight as well as working with experts to sort of understand the effects of potential cybersecurity breaches. 
2023 seems to be the year of reevaluating IT infrastructure services and looking at ways to transform your cybersecurity systems to find vulnerabilities sooner rather than later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think as business becomes more and more digital focused and more and more services are kind of digital, that's going to become an increasing challenge um, is the sort of cybersecurity. So that's definitely one to watch for, for this year. And there's definitely a kind of, they talk a lot about the digital skills gap um, and trying to kind of fill that will be kind of critical. I suppose the other issue would be the autumn budget and whether the government will follow through with their promises. There were a couple of things that were mentioned, uh, R&D expenditure credit up to 20%, windfall tax on energy costs up to 35%, and imported tariffs on more than 100 goods have been removed. So leaders have been anticipating whether the government will follow through on the promises made in the autumn budget, but of course, time will tell. Great. I think that's all from us. And we're going to now move to the powerful story from Emma Harris. Emma, thanks so much for joining us on the Management Today podcast. I first came across your story on your now famous LinkedIn post, which you wrote from your hospital bed shortly after suffering a cardiac arrest. And in that, you urge leaders to slow down. I was one of 93,000 people who liked it and found it a really powerful story. And I think I just looked last night, nearly 9,000 people have commented on it so far. So it's definitely created a kind of real touch point. Uh, I think it's a really good topic to talk about now in January as people come back from sort of a Christmas break and assess their goals for the year. And it's a sort of nice chance to reset. And I think this is a really powerful message to discuss now. To start, can you just tell the listeners a little bit about who you are and how you got there? Sure. So uh, my name's Emma Harris. I run a brand consultancy called Glow London. Uh, our big thing is all about connecting brands into their culture. So not just using brand as marketing, sort of what I call the wrapping paper, actually connecting it right through the business. I started in sales and went into marketing. Um, I was at Eurostar forever and a day. I still think Eurostar is my company. It's all my <laughs> brand. I was there for 10 years. So I think when you're, you know, I think a lot of us have that longevity of a, a business that really catches their heart. So when I left there in 2012, I was sales and marketing director and had led a lot of change. Yeah, that was my frustration that all the agencies were great advertising, but no one really got that the energy was about customer service, is about delivering the brand through every touch point, particularly with social media. So um, that's been my journey. Glow's been running officially for about three years. We've got lovely clients. And yeah, it's been a busy time, let's say. I also have been on the board of a social media agency called The Social Element for the past five years. I'm the trustee of a a fantastic charity called the Marketing Academy Foundation. I have four children. You can see the picture that I'm painting here, Kate. Um, (laughs) Short intake of breath there. (laughs) Yeah. Well, my oldest is 21 and my youngest is five, about to turn six. So I always say we've got sex, drugs and nursery rhymes going on in this house. It's like a 24 (laughs) operation. Where's that one? Is that one in bed? It's just, it's craziness. So yeah, a lot going on. Going back to when this all happened in May, I was on the PTA. I still am on the PTA at school and also was a rep for the class. My child was in reception. I feel exhausted just listening to you. (laughs) I mean, I don't know if you know what a mensch is. I don't know if one is allowed to call oneself a mensch, but a mensch is somebody who's just sort of, you know, 
does things for other people. That's always been my MO. I think without going too much into my background, when I was 12, my mum contracted a thing called viral encephalitis, which overnight took her from this fabulous alpha female who um, I'd like to think I role model myself on to being somebody with no short-term memory. So like a goldfish who just was in a kind of loop of no memory for the rest of her life for the next 30 years. So I think that really changed who I was and made me this person that just wanted to, you know, I coped by looking after everyone in my family, even though I was the youngest. And I think that's become who I am. So yes, I'm always the first with my hand up. I'm always the first, I'll help, I'll do this. I'll, I'll host that party. I'll look after that one. So that was the picture of Emma Harris. And then I was in New York. I'd done a week in New York with the Marketing Academy, performing on a, a boot camp session there. Then I'd gone to Chicago. One of my clients is WPP, and we were doing a big piece of work there. And then instead of going straight to New York, like with two-day break, I thought I'd fly home for 36 hours because my children needed me. And so, you know, a lot of flying, a lot of craziness. Then I was with Social Element exec team for five days in New York. We had a party for our US team. And then on the Friday, we're about to fly home. I was in a restaurant having brunch. This is all third party information because I don't remember any of this. I don't really remember much of that week. But I stood up to go to the loo. I'd also been exercising a lot that week. You can't see me, listeners, but I'm currently in a a hoodie. I am someone who enjoys life. I would like to say I've always been a party girl. I love my food. I'm I'm a a big voluptuous lady, um, but I've always exercised a lot. So that week I had done, I've been running by the Hudson. That morning I'd done a hit class in my bedroom. And I only know that because one of my friends had knocked on the door and said I was, you know, sweating and training. Anyway, stood up to go to the loo, gracefully apparently slid down the back of a chair um, and had stopped breathing. And for those of you that don't know, a cardiac arrest, I always thought was something you only heard about on Grey's Anatomy, you know, it was the American version of a heart attack. But actually, a cardiac arrest is very different. It's much more lethal. So a heart attack is where the muscles are struggling to cope, often through blockages, cholesterol, arteries that are clogged. I have none of that. My heart, effectively, is incredibly healthy. I've got very low cholesterol. My cholesterol is 3.3. What a cardiac arrest is, is when one of the ventricles has electronic pulses. It's almost, imagine, like a jelly wobbling. And it's going so fast that the heart can't pump, can't function. And you stop breathing altogether. It's like the lights go out. Wow. There's there's no slowing down. There's no struggling for breath. It's like what happened to the footballer, Christian Eriksen, when he collapsed on the pitch. You're gone. And unless you are around somebody who can do very good CPR or a defibrillator, you die. So only one in 10 people survive outside of hospital. And of those one in 10... 60% of people get brain damage because usually there's a lack of oxygen to the brain. So I slide down the back of a chair. My friends could see I was turning blue, apparently, um, stood up and shouted, is there a doctor here? Tamara Littleton, who's the CEO of Social Element, and Lynn Frost, who's the the MD, and there was uh, Wendy, the Chief People Officer, Tarina, the COO, Dan, who's our board advisor, they were all there. I don't know who actually said it. I think it was Lynn. Is there a doctor here? And three people in the restaurant stood up. I mean, what are the odds on that? Two women from Dallas and a man. I mean, I haven't found any of them. And they gave me CPR. They got my heart working again. The ambulance came in seven minutes, which is unheard of in New York. My heart stopped again in the ambulance, apparently. I mean, I only heard this last week from Tamara and Wendy that when they were outside and I was in the ambulance, there were people working on me. People kept coming out of the ambulance, shaking their heads. 
Um, and they said that was a really horrible moment for them because they were basically saying she's not going to make it. And that night, the doctor said to Lynn, look, they made her next to kid. My husband was flying over. And they said to her, look, expect the worst. We There's a lot going on for her. We don't think she's going to make it. And then I did. I think with the cardiac arrest, you either die or survive. You know, and what they did is they did a heart operation. They cauterized the part of my heart that had, had this ventricular fibrillation, which is crazy to think they burnt it off. Um, they put a defibrillator in my side. So if it did ever happen again, and who knows whether it would ever happen again, but if it did, I, I would be shocked and, and hopefully survive. Um, and in terms of why it happened, it's considered idiopathic, which means they don't actually, you know, there's no genetic disorder. Like I said, my heart was completely healthy. But they see it as um, a perfect storm of stress cardiomyopathy, lots of flying, which as we know isn't good for you. And yeah, just a combination of everything. A lot of coffee. I was absolutely knackered. So I was drinking a lot of coffee. I love an espresso martini. So there was like coffees all day, then espresso martinis at night to try and keep me awake because I was so tired. Lots of exercise, you know, just lots of food because New York's just a, a foodie place um, and just a perfect storm. So is that what the doctors then, they, that's what they said to you, that it was as a result of stress and all of these factors? All these factors creating a perfect storm. They can't nail if I'd have done this differently, if I'd have done that differently. So that's the difficult thing mm. coming out of that. They can't say, right, if you stop drinking completely, you'll be fine. In fact, my cardiologist, who's a legend, said to me, don't be a cardiac cripple. Get back to your life. Because at first I was like, no coffee, no alcohol, no no moving, no nothing, no running. But now I'm a much calmer version of my old self. But I'm, you know, I have the odd drink. I, I have one coffee a day, no more. But yes, I'm definitely slowing down. Well, thanks for sharing that. That's a quite terrifying account. Um, how long were you in the ICU for? I was in ICU for eight days. Um, I mean, one of the doctors from the first hospital, because they'd moved in me to this other hospital that was a, a, the best cardiologist unit in New York, came to see me, apparently, because he couldn't believe I was alive. So I was there eight days. I was sedated for a couple of days because I had the, the thing down my throat. Um, and then I was fighting them to get it out. And then when I came out, I had, terrifyingly for my sister who'd flown over, a short-term memory problem, like my mum. She was like, oh my God, this has happened again, where I kept saying, where am I? What's happened? And you don't remember writing the LinkedIn post either, do you? I don't. No. I, I remember the odd moments, like when the surgeon asked me if I'd had breast surgery, you know, before, and I was lying there, you know, one boob under each arm. And I said to him, well, if I have, I'm going to sue them. But I do remember that. <laughs> I remember like a weird odd moments. Um but I don't remember writing the LinkedIn post. And, you know, terrifyingly for, you know, my kids didn't know. My clients didn't know. A lot of the the wider team didn't know. So they'd all kept it very quiet till they knew I was out of the woods. And there I go, posting it on LinkedIn. A lot of the parents from school are connected with me on LinkedIn. So I just blew the whole thing apart. So you, you at this point, your children didn't know and you put the LinkedIn post out? I didn't know what I was doing. I just, I am a big believer in social media, you know, not being just for the look, you know, celebration, look, we've won this award and look, we've done this. I am a big believer, you know, I've talked a lot about mental health and about miscarriages and it is, I do think that social media can be a force for good if, if done well. And I don't know, something in me was like, people need to hear this because I do think post-COVID, we are all working harder than we ever have. And there was this whole, yeah, for some people it was great and we were at home and with our kids and the weather was great. But for some of us, we were doing, you know, home learning 
early in the morning and then there's been this expectation since then I feel of back to back to back to back you know often I would get to three o'clock my husband who's an actor doesn't really understand what we do um just thought I was a mad woman that I'd be like I need some water can you get me some water he'd be like tell the person you're in a meeting with you just need to go and get some water which of course I could have and I don't know what that's about but you just, you know, no food, no water, no we break. And that's just not sustainable. Well, it's it's not letting other people down. And it's also prioritizing other people's needs over your own. And then if you do that consistently over time, you end up not really thinking about your own needs at all. And I know that there's so many risks of talking about gender in this way, because I'm categorizing. But I do think for working mums, that is our MO and we're always putting everyone else first and rarely putting ourselves first and always feel like we're slightly failing at everything. We're never at the school gates enough and we're never, you know, we miss the school plays and the assemblies, yet we always feel like we're, you know, trying to do too much at work. So you slightly feel like you're failing at everything, absolutely putting everyone else's needs before your own. I don't think that's just women either. I mean, those 9,000 comments, which God, one day I will sit and read I read some of them. There was a guy on there who told me a story about how he was working for an ad agency. He was, I think he was the creative director. On his way to a big pitch, knew he was having a heart attack, went to the pitch, did the pitch, and on the way out, said to the suit, could you please take me to a and I'm having a heart attack. I mean, <laughs> what the hell? And I think that we, I think our generation were brought up to work hard, play hard. I certainly remember me as a leader you know, when I was at Eurostar, I had a team of about 300. And I remember, you know, expecting everyone to be out partying with me because I was so hardcore till three, four in the morning and still be at their desk at eight o'clock in the morning. And I didn't think about the fact there'd be some people that were parents that for them, it's just, you know, if we're in a hotel, it's a night's sleep. Or the fact that that's just not a sustainable way to live. And I think we've grown up with that pressure. And I remember thinking, we used to talk about millennials, they're so entitled and, you know, they don't like working at long hours. Well, they've got a point, you know, because who are we doing it for? For a long time, and I know I'm not alone in this, this drive for better, bigger, more, faster, you know, my turnover had to grow year on year. We had to win that bit of business. You had to win that award. For who? That's mm-hmm. my perspective now. Who was I doing that for? Mm, that's so interesting. And I think that's it. There's a constant battle for more, more, more chasing growth all the time. And I think we've kind of set up this sort of hustle culture. You see that sort of the end of, you know, the, the end point of a lot of that um, build up. But that people pride themselves on being able to work hard and do exactly what you're saying. Go out at night time. We don't need much sleep. We'll get in in the morning. It's fine. And I think that that's seen as a real badge of honor for a lot of people. And I think there's also this sort of perpetuating cycle that if as a leader, you have grown up in that environment, you then get to the leadership position and you don't know a way to do that differently. And I remember interviewing somebody and not, this is obviously not an issue that's specific to advertising, but I appreciate, you know, you are in advertising. I used to kind of cover it a lot. I remember speaking to one woman who became a creative leader. She said she obviously hated all the kind of 3am finishes, the kind of working every single weekend, et cetera. But when she became that position in that leadership position, she didn't know how to get good work differently because she didn't have any other kind of way of doing that or way of trying to get to that. So you end up perpetuating the same cycle. Mm. And I think that's part of the big problem is how you break that. Well, absolutely. I think the leadership thing is so important. 
because that's where the behaviours come from. You're absolutely right. And on many levels, leading by example, you know, if you are a parent, talking about the fact, I'm leaving early today, I'm going to see the school play, you know, and sharing your struggles, you know, God, Brene Brown and the wonder of her talking about vulnerability and how powerful that is as a leader. I do think we're still of an age where people think that you have to be perfect and impenetrable and actually sharing vulnerability makes people trust more. So that whole leading by example, creating space for people, not just to work flexibly and look after themselves mentally and physically. And there's so much that a business can do from, you know, the sort of functional making sure people are aware of support that they can get, you know, encouraging open about the importance of exercise, about hydration, about the right nutrition, you know, really creating a sort of culture of care for people Mm. and making that important more than the sort of 3am finishes. So 30% of my business is owned by a company called Planet K2. We're sort of a family and Planet K2 are human performance experts. So I've spent a lot of my life learning and talking about performance from an elite sport perspective. And sports people think business people are insane because you wouldn't think, you know, to get to win a gold medal that you just train 24 hours, you know, with five hours sleep. And where athletes realize that the body is the thing that's going to win the race, it's no different for business people. Mm -hmm. And it's not the laptop. It's not your report. It's not your presentation. It's you that's going to get that job, smash that, you know, meeting, be able to deliver on that work and actually looking after your body from a sleep, rest and recovery, the importance, like I said, of water. I'm really glad to see you've got a bottle of water next to you. Always. You know, recommendation <laughs> is drink a cup of water every 20 minutes, minimizing caffeine. I'm not saying be a purist, considering when you drink and not, I mean, I was of a, of a time where I was drinking five nights a week and sort of stumbling through the day, managing to do it. And and as a leader, recognizing that there are times when you have to overtly say, actually, I'm not going to drink tonight and sort of show people that, or I'm going home early because I'm tired. Mm. That it seems to be there's this, this fear that you're not impenetrable and that's got to change. It's got to come from the top. And creating that space for the conversation, that's really important. Giving space, giving platforms for people to talk and share and share their own vulnerabilities and their own struggles and this is all about sort of how the leadership create that what I call cultural fabric that will underpin whether there is a genuine duty of care for people or not and there's so much evidence I mean why I wrote this thing recently because obviously my piece that went out had this hashtag slow the fuck down which seems to have become a bit of a movement and when I talk about all these things about giving people flexible hours and the importance of encouraging them to take time when they need it. I know a lot of leaders are like, well, I need my team to speed the fuck up, not slow the fuck down. But actually, there's so much evidence that when people feel genuinely cared for and looked after, they're more productive. When people are able to have flexible hours, you know, all the evidence about a four-day week, I think there's about 100 companies recently that have announced a four-day week. M&S have gone to flexible hours. There's so much evidence that if you give people the respect and the space I always used to say I don't mind what hours you do just get the work done and do it you know that's what leadership is 
I completely agree with that. And I think the flexible working movement is fantastic. And I think exactly that, letting people have some freedom and flexibility about fitting things into their schedule. I do think, however, there is a flip side to that, which is do the work whenever you want. But if you are ultimately giving people too much work to do, then it, it just takes over. And I interviewed somebody called um, Veronique Reese Evans, um, who you might know she's in advertising as well. But um, she talked about her son has got, I think, um, diabetes type one and is kind of very often um, blue lighted to hospital. And there was one occasion where she was blue lighted to hospital in the ambulance with her son. She was at his bedside in the hospital and she was still writing up a press release. And she said that was a real moment for her afterwards because she said the problem is nobody had told her to do that, but nobody had told her not to do it either. So it, it, it's this sort of expectations that leadership is setting that you, you know, that you don't really think about. And I think that that's you've really got to think about the culture that you're you're creating in your business. And it's really hard to say to your boss, I've got too much to do. That doesn't feel comfortable for a lot of people. And I get that. I can see that would be a challenging conversation to have. Therefore, it's the leader's responsibility to say, right, you know, to make sure everyone has different levels that they want, different amounts of autonomy that they want, different workloads that they want, different. So it's about, you know, there's no one size fits all. And it's the leader's job to make sure that they're connecting properly with each of their team to see whether the workload's appropriate or not. Mm. And I think that's one of the pressures that leaders have faced over the COVID pandemic, because suddenly they're having to deal with all these individual personal issues from everybody and having to almost become more sort of psychologists and coaches and help people a lot more. But then that obviously places a lot more extra pressure for them as well. And then if they're not looking after their own needs first, then that's a real problem too. And it kind of builds up and builds up. And I think that within leadership, there's this kind of perception that if you're at the top, you should be able to handle whatever pressure is thrown at you. You know, if you take the big salary, that kind of precludes you from public sympathy about the fact that actually you could be struggling too. So I think there's a kind of a really interesting thing there that how you, how you unpick that as a leader. So can we just move back to your personal story again? So you've obviously come through this really, I think, life-changing experience. What practical steps have you taken to try and prevent that from happening again and to change the way that you act as a leader? So from a really practical point of view, I have one day in the diary. So I've always done a four-day week since I had my daughter, who's now 10. So actually, I've been doing a four-day week for a long time. But now I have, so I keep my Fridays. I mean, God, I've got a house and a husband and, you know, a lot to do on that Friday. There's, that's life admin day. Um, and I go to the gym and, you know, sometimes have not do nice things. But one of the other four days is called a rest day. I mean, what it basically is, is where I have no meetings in my diary. And it means I've got space to think and write because I do quite a lot of writing. But it could be I'm writing proposals or doing decks or blogs or I'm contributing to a book at the moment. So that's my day. And it, so it's not really kind of, it means I'm not rushing into town. I'm at home. I can be around when the kids get home from school. Protecting that as much as we can has become really, really important. And that feels like a really, and usually it's Tuesday. So Monday, I'll have all my one-to-ones and get the week going. And usually work from home. Tuesday is my rest day. Wednesday and Thursday, I'm in town. And that's great. So anyone that wants to see me for dinner, Soph, my assistant, who's the best thing in the world, will know to put them in on a Wednesday and Thursday. And then Friday's my day for love. And that feels great. And I appreciate that not everyone has to. I run my own business. I've got the luxury of doing that. 
but that I'm protecting with my life. I've also stepped back, so my role at the social element has changed. I'm no longer on the exec team. I'm a board advisor. So that has a sort of different pressure to it because I'm no longer involved in the day-to-day. I'm not a rep (laughs) of the class anymore. I'm still on the PTA, which is a remarkable amount of stuff to do. And I've got a nutritionist. So I've always eaten pretty healthy, but I just thought, actually, let's work with someone. So the, the way I eat is very Mediterranean. It's not a diet. But basically, I have quite small plates I eat off, and it's 50% vegetables, 25% protein, 25% carbs. So my nutritionist is not a believer in cutting things out. Carbs are good for you. It's just It's all about monitoring. I have a personal trainer who I see every Wednesday morning, which is why the listeners can't see that I look <laughs> absolutely horrendous. But I've just had a quite you know, punishing hour of kettlebells and, and weights and TRX but not running. So I'm not running anymore. I'm not saying running is bad for you, but I was doing quite a lot of running when my cardiac arrest happened and it's just given me a slight fear. So I'm doing lots of strength training. Mm-hmm. It's all about weights and building up my strength, which feels really good. Um, and just prioritizing my kids. I mean, oh my God. I mean, there were some serious angels helping me that day. You know, if I'd have got Salu, how often do you say, oh, they've been a long time. If it had happened in London, even, you know, if it happened to us walking down the street or God forbid a million times, if I was at home with my kids on my own, you know, they'd have had to go and think about. But at the beginning, I had this crazy obsession with why me? Mm-hmm. Like, why was I saved and and not other people? Because I've, I lost a friend of mine a couple of years ago to something similar. Um, and he died at home in the morning. And I, and I think, why was I saved? And I feel like it's my kids, you know. I was 50 recently, and one of the things I said at my birthday is the big learning for me is all that matters is love. And I know I sound like love, actually, but, (laughs) you know, that opening scene at the airport. But it really is true. I was talking to my 21-year-old about this last night. The quest for more, better, bigger, whatever, that faster, isn't really it. And if we could all recognise that the quest is for self-love, the quest. And we feel like the status that we get from all those things will give us that. When I'm rich enough, when I'm successful enough, when I've got that title, when I've, you know, when I'm thin enough, when I'm this enough, I'll love myself. But the quest really is self-love. That's, is peace. And I know I sound like a hippie, but it really is to invest time in yourself, which is something else I'm doing a lot of. I'm an NLP practitioner and a lot of the work that I do with Planet K2 is about choosing your emotions and it's about mental preparation. So prioritizing that, prioritizing my kids and prioritizing me. And I'm not brilliant at it still, I'll be honest. I still have to really check myself. I'm out tonight, I'm out tomorrow night. And then on Friday, one of my friends was like, oh, I want to have a get together. And I said, oh, I'm out two nights tomorrow. I'm not going to be out for a third night. She went, great, we'll come to you. So she said, we'll come in. And it's like, I should just say no, but I'm not very good at that. But one of the things I really want to share with people is that bigger, better, more, faster thing is in our heads. And when we're having those thoughts about I'm not good enough, which we all get, unless you're a psychopath. So those thoughts in our heads of I'm not good enough and I've got to do more and I'm a rubbish mum and I'm a rubbish this. They don't actually exist. So your thoughts and your feelings don't exist. They're not real. The only thing that's real is this moment now. So even recognizing that that thought 
is just a thought disassociating with it and thinking well that's interesting I'm thinking that it's like putting a little pin in the thought it loses its power I don't know if you've heard of the book or read the book The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle I've heard of it yeah yeah I mean it's it's a bit of a cult book it is quite powerful but yes that for me has been the biggest thing recognizing oh that's an interesting thought but I'm not going to be dragged around by it and not choose me because of it Mm. that's really interesting because I I recognize a lot in what you're saying about the I think our society is set up around external validation and it's you know your big job titles a big salaries you know what the status symbols that ultimately help you feel good about yourself that you're somehow successful and a lot of people as you say talk about actually success being something that is an internally chosen thing what would you say to a leader who's listening to this now thinking this sounds great, but I just can't drop these balls because I've got so many things I need to I need to do. I I, I can't step back. I can't do. I can't say no to something. What would you say to them? Try it, because that thing of saying no is so powerful. And what's mad is that you have this catastrophization in your head. If I don't go to that event or that meeting, if I'm not there. I'll miss the biggest business deal of my life. I'll miss me, you know, something amazing will happen and I won't be there. And that's bonkers. And actually, I was coaching a very senior person recently and she was saying that she doesn't like, when she goes for a walk at lunchtime, she takes her phone with her. And I said, well, what, what would happen if you left it at home? And we eventually got to the point, we unpicked the unconscious thoughts in her head and she ended up on the streets you know, this is a very senior, well-established woman who in her head, someone will think I'm skiving. And I was like, and then what? They'll think badly of me. Then I'll end up, the long term down the road was I'll lose my job or lose our house. I'll end up on the street. So that's not usually a conscious thought, but in the back of it, that's the madness with which we're saying yes instead of no. So try it. And there are ways to say no. Here's another thing I've been talking to people about. There are ways to say no that doesn't feel so bad. Saying no feels really uncomfortable. It feels like a brick wall. You can say yes and. So we really need to do this this way. Okay, great. That sounds brilliant. And let's find another way to do it. Is you know, What way can we do it that doesn't involve me coming into the office tomorrow? What are the other options available? So that doesn't feel like a no, even though you're kind of saying no. You know, one of the things I say a lot to my team when I was at Eurostar, even though obviously I pushed them quite hard when they got stressed out, they'd be like, it's just a job. You know, unless you're a, 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 a heart surgeon, <laughs> particular <laughs> favourites of mine. But, you know, most of us, as my sister who's a counsellor says, most of us are just selling stuff to each other. Nothing is more important than you. So try saying no a few times and see the benefit that you get from it because you'll be more productive in the long term. This is not about slowing down to be less effective. This is about slowing down to be better. This is high performance. It's about looking after yourself to be the best version of yourself. Fantastic. That was a brilliant way to end it, Emma. Thank you so much for sharing your story. That was really powerful. And I really hope that people listening today will have taken quite a lot from your story. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to Management Today's Leadership Lessons. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. We're available on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts.